0: Seven. He about do that party brought on the other, which occurred a few nights later and was given by us jointly in honor of a very beautiful and talented young actress. And this one, we agree, was in a way the most amusing of all the parties we had had together. It was early in the morning when we were leaving the cafe after the first party that we encountered the lady who caused the second one. I had never met her, but I was aware that my companion knew her, for he talked about her in his sleep she was having supper with a gentleman at a table near the door, and had you seen her it would be unnecessary for me to tell you that my companion stopped to speak to her, and that I hung around until he introduced me, after we had stood beside her, for a time, talking and gazing down into her beautiful world-wise eyes, the gentleman with whom she was supping took pity upon us, and upon the waiters, whose passageway we blocked, and invited us to sit down. It was doubly delightful to meet her there in Washington. For besides being beautiful and celebrated, she had just come from New York and was able to give us news of mutual friends, bringing us up to date on suits for separation, alimony, and alienation of affections, on divorces and remarriages, and all the little items one loses track of when one has been away for a fortnight. I shall be playing in Washington Hall this week, she said as we were about to leave. I hope that we may see each other again whom did she mean by, we? True. She looked at my companion as she spoke, but he was seated at one side of her and I at the other, and even with such eyes as hers, she could not have looked at both of us at once. Certainly the hope she had expressed was shared by me, hope that, we, might meet again, and it seemed to me desirable at the moment that she should understand and that my companion should be reminded that the and I were as Damon and Pythias, as Castor and Pollux, as Pylades and Orestes, and all that sort of thing, therefore I leaked quickly at the word, we, and, before my companion had time to answer, replied, I hope so too, this brought her eyes to me, she looked surprised, I thought, but what of that, don't women like to be surprised, don't they like men to be strong, resolute, determined, like heroes in the moving pictures, don't they like to see a man handle matters with dash? I was determined to be dashing. we are off to Virginia tomorrow morning, I continued, we are going to Fredericksburg and Charlottesville, and into the fox hunting country, if we can get back here Saturday night let's have a party, I spoke of the hunting country debonairly, I did not care what she thought my companion was going to the hunting country for, but I did not wish her to think that I was going only to a look on, on the contrary, I desired her to suppose that I should presently be wearing a pair of beautiful, slim legged riding boots and a pink coat and leaping a thoroughbred mount over fences and gates, I wished her to believe me a wild, reckless, devil of a fellow, and to worry throughout the week lest I be killed in a fall from my horse, and she'd never see me more poor girl, that she felt such emotions I have since had reason to doubt, however, the idea of a party after the play on Saturday night seemed to appeal to her, and it was arranged that my companion and I should endeavor to get back to Washington after the Piedmont Hunt races, which we were to attend on Saturday afternoon, and that if we could get back we should telegraph to her. We kept our agreement but I shall come to that later. Next morning we took train for Fredericksburg. The city manager who runs the town is a good housekeeper, his streets are wide, pretty, and clean, and though there are many historic buildings including the home of Washington's mother and the house in which Washington became a mason there are enough good new ones to give the place a progressive look. In the days of the state's magnificence Fredericksburg was the center for all this part of northeastern Virginia, and particularly for the Rappahannock Valley, and from pre-revolutionary times, when tobacco was legal tender and ministers got roaring drunk, down to the Civil War. There came rolling into the town the coaches of the great plantation owners of the region, who used Fredericksburg as a headquarters for drinking, gambling, and business. Among these probably the most famous was King Carter who not only owned miles upon miles of land and a thousand slaves, but was the husband of five successive Mrs. Carter's, Felmouth, a river town a mile above Fredericksburg, where a few scattered houses stand today, was in early times a busy place. It is said that the first flour mill in America stood there, and that one Gordon, who made his money by shipping flour and tobacco direct from his wharf to England, and bringing back bricks as ballast for his ships, was the first American millionaire. Besides having known intimately such historic figures as Washington, Monroe, and Robert E. Lee, and having been the scene of sanguinary fighting in the Civil War, the neighborhood of Fredericksburg boasts the birthplace of a man of whom I wish to speak briefly here, for the reason that he was a great man, that he has been partially overlooked by history and that it is said in the South that the fame which should justly be his has been deliberately withheld by historians and politicians for the sole reason that as a naval officer he espoused the Southern cause in the Civil War. Everyone who has heard of Robert Fulton, certainly everyone who has heard of S.F.B. Morse or Cyrus W. Field, ought also to have heard of Matthew Fontenori. but that is not the case. For myself, I must confess that, until I visited Virginia, I was ignorant of the fact that such a person had existed, nor had northern schoolboys, to whom I had spoken of Maury, so much as heard his name. Yet there is no one living in the United States, or in any civilized country, whose daily life is not affected through the scientific researches and attainments of this man. Maury's claim to fame rests on his eminent services to navigation and meteorology. If Humboldt's work, published in 1817, was the first great contribution to meteorological science. It remained for Maury to make that science exact. While it is perhaps an exaggeration to say that Maury alone laid the foundation for our present weather bureau, he certainly shares with Professors Redfield, Espy, Loomis, Joseph Henry, Dr. Increase Lapham, and others, the honor of having been one of the first to suggest the feasibility of our present systematic storm warnings. Maury was born in 1806. When nineteen years of age he secured a midshipman's warrant, and, as there was no naval academy at Annapolis then, was immediately assigned to a man of war. Within six years he was master of an American war vessel. Before starting on a voyage to the Pacific he sought information on the winds and currents, and finding that it was not available, determined himself to gather it for general publication. This he did, issuing a book upon the subject, when a broken leg, the result of a stagecoach accident. Caused his retirement from active service at sea. He continued his studies, and, in recognition of his services to navigation, was given charge of the Depot of Charts and Instruments at Washington. There he found stored away the log books of American naval vessels, and from the vast number of observations they contained, began the compilation of the wind and currents charts known to all mariners. A monograph on Maury, issued by N. W. Ayer and Son, of Philadelphia, says of these charts, they were at first, received with indifference and incredulity. Finally, a Captain Jackson determined to trust the new chart absolutely. As a result he made a round trip to a Rio de Janeiro in the time often required for the outward passage alone. Later, four clipper ships started from New York for San Francisco, via Cape Horn. These vessels arrived at their destination in the order determined by the degree of fidelity with which they had followed the directions of Maury's charts. The arrival of these ships in San Francisco marked, likewise, the arrival of Maury's wind and currents charts in the lasting favor of the mariners of the world. The average voyage to San Francisco was reduced, by use of the charts, from 183 to 135 days, a saving of 48 days. Soon after this, the ship San Francisco, with hundreds of United States troops on board, foundered in an Atlantic hurricane. The rumor reached port that there was need of help. Maury was called upon to indicate her probable location. He set to a work to show where the wind and currents would combine to place a helpless wreck, and marked the place with a blue pencil. There the relief was sent, and there the survivors of the wreck were found. From that day to this, Maury's word has been accepted without challenge by the matter-of-fact men of the sea. These charts, only a few in number, are among the most wonderful and full productions of the human mind one of them combined the result of 1.159.353 separate observations on the force and direction of the wind, and upward of 100.000 observations on the height of the barometer, that's e. As the value of such observations was recognized, more of them were made, through the genius and devotion of one man, Commander Mori, every ship became a floating observatory, keeping careful records of winds, currents, limits of fogs, icebergs, rain areas, temperature, soundings, etc. While every maritime nation of the world cooperated in a work that was to redound to the benefit of commerce and navigation, the increase of knowledge, the good of all. In 1853, at the instance of Commander Maury, the United States called the celebrated Brussels Conference for the Cooperation of Nations in matters pertaining to maritime affairs. At this conference, Maury advocated the extension of the system of meteorological observation to the land, thus forming a weather bureau helpful to agriculture. This he urged in papers and addresses to the close of his life. Our present weather bureau and signal service are largely the outcome of his perception and advocacy. Maury's Physical Geography of the Sea, the work by which he is best known, was published in 1855. He discovered, among other things, the causes of the Gulf Stream and the existence of the Stillwater Plateau of the North Atlantic which made possible the laying of the first cable, Cyrus W. Field said, With reference to Maury's work in this connection, "Maury furnished the brains. England gave the money, and I did the work. Maury was decorated by many foreign governments but not by his own, allowing, it is said, to his having taken up the Confederate cause, national honors were withheld from him, not only during the remainder of his life, but until 1916 when one of the large buildings at the Naval Academy the establishment of which, by the way, Maury was one of the first to advocate was named for him, and Congress passed a bill appropriating funds for the erection of a monument to the Pathfinder of the Sea, in Washington, Maury died in 1873, one of the most loved and honored men in the state of Virginia, it is recorded that, near the end, he asked his son, am I dragging my anchors? and when the latter replied in the affirmative, The father gave a brave sailor's answer, all swell, he said. Across the river from Fredericksburg stands Chatham, the old Fitzhugh house, one of the most charming of early Virginian mansions. Chatham was built in 1728, and it is thought that the plans for it were drawn by Sir Christopher Wren at the order of William Pitt, Earl of Chatham, and sent by the latter to a William Fitzhugh, who had been his classmate at Eton and Oxford. Not only does the name of the house lend color to the tale, But so do its proportions, which are very beautiful, reminding one somewhat of those of D'Organ Manor. Chatham, however, has the advantage of being as the Han, Charles Augustus Murray wrote of it in his quaint Travels in North America, published in 1839, situated on an eminence commanding a view of the town, and of the bold, sweeping course of the Rapotonic, Murray also tells of the beautiful garden, with its great box trees and its huge slave-built terraces stepping down to the water like a giant stairway, in this house my companion and I were guests, and as I won the toss for the choice of rooms, mine was the privilege of sleeping in the historic west bed-chamber, the principal guest-room, and of opening my eyes, in the morning, upon a lovely wall all panelled in white-painted wood, I shall always remember the delightful experience of awakening in that room, so vast, dignified, and beautiful, and of lying there a little drowsy, and thinking of those who had been there before me. This was the room occupied by George and Martha Washington when they stopped for a few days at Chatham on their wedding journey. This was the room occupied by Madison, by Monroe, by Washington Irving, and by Robert E. Lee when he visited Chatham and courted Mary Custis, who became his wife, and, most wonderful of all to me. This was the room occupied by Lincoln when he came to Fredericksburg to review the army, while Chatham was Union Headquarters and the embattled Lee had headquarters in the old house known as Brompton, still standing on Mary's Heights back of the river and the town. It is said that Lee during the siege of Fredericksburg never trained his guns on Chatham, because of his sentiment for the place. As I lay there in the morning I wondered if Lee had been aware, at the time, that Lincoln was under the roof of Chatham, and whether Lincoln knew, when he slept in my room, that Washington and Lee had both been there before him. Or, I thought, not only makes strange bedfellows, but strange combinations in the histories of bedrooms. Then the maid rapped for the second time upon my door, and though this time I got up at once, my ruminations made me scandalously late for breakfast. After breakfast came the motor, which was to take us to the battlefields, its driver a thin dry-looking, dry-talking man, with the air of one a little tired of the story he told to tourists day in and day out, yet conscientiously resolved to go through with it before the huge cemetery which overlooks the site of the most violent fighting that occurred in the bloody and useless Battle of Fredericksburg. He paused briefly, then drove us to the field of Chancellorsville, to that of the Battles of the Wilderness, and finally to the region of Spotsylvania Courthouse, and at each important spot he stopped and told us what had happened there. He knew all about the Civil War, man, and he had a way of passing out his information with a calm assumption that his hearers knew nothing about it whatever. This irritated my companion, who also knows all about the war, having once passed eight, three days in the neighborhood of a soldier's home. Consequently, he kept cutting in, supplying additional details, such, for instance, as that Stonewall Jackson, who died in a house which the driver punted out, was shot by some of his own men, who took him for a Yankee as he was returning from a reconnaissance. Either one of these competitive historians alone, I could have stood, but the way they picked each other up. Fighting the old-time battles over again, got on my nerves. Besides, it was cold, and as I have taken occasion to remark before, I do not like cold motor rides. Indeed, as I think it over, it seems to me I do not like battlefields, either. At all events, I became more and more morose as we traversed that bleak Virginia landscape, and I am afraid that before the day was over I was downright sulky. As we drove back to Fredericksburg into the train which was to take us to Charlottesville, my companion made remarks of a general character about people who were trivial-minded, and who didn't take a proper interest in the scenes of great historical occurrences. When he had continued for some time in this vein, I remarked feebly that I loved to read about battles, but that, far from mitigating his severity, only caused him to change his theme. He said that physical lousiness was a terrible thing because it not only made the body soft but by degrees softened the brain, as well. He said that when people didn't want to see battlefields, preferring to lie in bed and read about them, that was a sign of the beginning of the end. On various occasions throughout the week he brought this subject up again, and I was glad indeed when, as the time for our party with the beautiful young actress, in Washington, drew near. He began to forget about my shortcomings and think of more agreeable things. Chapter XIB Charlottesville and Monticello When Virginians speak of the university, they do not mean Harvard, Princeton, Yale, or even Washington and Lee, but always the University of Virginia, which is at Charlottesville. The city of Charlottesville, in its downtown parts, is no more and no less dingy and dismal than many another town of six or seven thousand inhabitants, be it north or south. It has a long main street, lined with little shops and moving picture shows, and the theatrical posters which thrill one at first sight with hopes of evening entertainment, proof, on inspection, to have survived long after the show they advertise has come and gone, or else to presage the show that is coming for one night, week after next, nor is the scarcity of theatrical entertainment confined alone to small towns of the South. Not all important stars and important theatrical productions visit even the largest cities, for the South is not regarded by theatrical managers as particularly profitable territory. It would be interesting to know whether anemia of the theater in the South, as well as the falling off generally of theater going in lesser American cities usually attributed to the popularity and cheapness of the movies, is not due in large measure to the folly of managers themselves in sending out inferior companies. Anyone who has seen a theatrical entertainment in New York and seen it later, on the road, is likely to be struck by the fact that even the larger American cities do not always get the full New York cast, while smaller cities seldom if ever get any part of it. The South suffers particularly in this respect. The little river shows, which arrive now and then in river towns, and which are more or less characteristic of the South, had the excuse of real picturesqueness, however bad the entertainment given for the players live and have their theater on flatboats, which tie up at the wharf, but the plain fact about the ordinary little southern road show is that it does not deserve to make money, the life of a poor player touring the south must be very wretched, for generally, excepting in large cities, hotels are poor, before we had gone far upon our way, my companion and I learned to inquire carefully in advance as to the best hotels, and when we found in any small city one which was not a fire trap, And which was clean, we were surprised. While if the service was fairly good, and the meals were not very bad, we considered it a matter for rejoicing. We were advised to stop in Charlottesville at the new Gleason, and when we alighted at the dingy old brick railroad station, a station quite as unprepossessing as that at New Haven, Connecticut, we began to feel that all was not for the best. A large gray horse hitched to the hack in which we rode to the Gleason evidently felt the same, for at first he balked. And later tried to run away. The hotel lobby was a perfect example of its kind. There were several drummers writing at the little desks, and several more sitting idly in chairs adjacent to brass cuspidors. All of them looked despondent with a despondency suggesting pie for breakfast. Behind the desk was a sleepy looking old clerk who, as we arrived, was very busy over a financial transaction involving change of ownership in a two cent stamp. This enterprise concluded. He assigned us rooms. Never had I wished to win the toss for rooms as I wished it when I saw the two allotted to us, for though the larger one could not by a flight of fancy be termed cheerful, the sight of the lesser chamber filled me with thoughts of madness, of course I lost, never shall I forget that room, it was too small to accommodate my trunks with any comfort, so I left them downstairs with the porter, descending, now and then, to get such articles as I required, the furniture, what there was of it, was of yellow pine, The top of the dresser was scarred with the marks of many glasses and many bottles, the lace window curtains were long, hard and of a wiry stiffness, and the wallpaper was of a scrambled pattern all in bilious brown. During the evening I persuaded my companion to walk with me through the town, and once I got him out I kept him going on and on through shadowy streets unknown to us, until, exhausted, he insisted upon returning to our hostelry. I fancy that there are picturesque old houses on the outskirts of the town, but with that wallpaper and a terrible nostalgia occupying my mind, I was in no state to judge of what was there. On reaching the hotel my companion went to bed, but I remained until late in the office, writing letters, doing anything rather than go up to my room. When at last I did ascend I planned to read, but the arrangement of the light was bad, so presently I put it out and lay there sleepless and miserable thinking of foolish things that I have said and done during a life rich with such items, and having chills and fever over each separate recollection. How I drifted off to sleep at last I do not know, all I remember is waking up next morning, leaping out of bed and dressing in frantic haste to get out of my room. There was but one thing in it which did not utterly offend the eye, that was the steam pipe which ascended from floor to ceiling at one corner, and which, being a simple, honest metal tube, was not objectionable as we passade through the office on our way to breakfast, the busman entered, and in a loud, retarded chant proclaimed, train for the south, the impressive tones in which this announcement was delivered seemed to call for a sudden stir, a rush for bags and coats, a general exodus, but no one in the office moved, and I remember feeling sorry for the busman as he turned and went out in the midst of a crushing anticlimax. I wonder, I said to my companion, if anybody ever gets up and goes when that man calls out the trains, I don't believe so. He replied, I don't think he calls trains for any such purpose. He only warns people so they will expect to hear the train and not be frightened when it goes through. Thomas Jefferson is most widely remembered, I suppose, as the author of the Declaration of Independence, the third president, the purchaser of Louisiana and the unfortunate individual upon whom the Democratic Party casts the blame for its existence, precisely as the Republican Party blames itself on Washington and Lincoln although the lamentable state into which both parties have fallen is actually the fault of living men. It is significant, however, that of this trio of Jeffersonian items. Jefferson himself selected but one to be included in the inscription which he wrote for his two-stone a modest obelisk on the grounds at Monticello. The inscription mentions but three of his achievements, the authorship of the Declaration, that of the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom, and the fact that he was father of the University of Virginia, regardless of other accomplishments. The man who built the university and the house at Monticello was great. It is more true of these buildings than of any others I have seen that they are the autobiography, in brick and stone, of their architect. To see them, to see some of the exquisitely margin manuscript in Jefferson's clean handwriting, preserved in the university library, and to read the declaration, is to gain a grasp of certain sides of Jefferson's nature which can be achieved in no other way. Monticello stands on a lofty hilltop, with vistas, between trees, of neighboring valleys, hills, and mountains. It is a supremely lovely house, and like any other, and, while it is too much to say that one would recognize it as the house of the writer of the declaration, it is not too much to say that, once one does know it, one can trace a clear affinity resulting from a common origin and affinity much more apparent, by the way, than may be traced between the work of Michelangelo on Street Peters at Rome, on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, and in his, David. The introductory paragraph to the declaration ascends into the body of the document as gracefully and as certainly as the wide flights of easy steps ascend to the doors of Monticello, the long and beautifully balanced paragraph which follows, building word upon word and sentence upon sentence into a central statement, has a form as definite and graceful as that of the finely proportioned house, the numbered paragraphs which follow, setting forth separate details, are like rooms within the house. And I have just come upon the coincidence with a pleasant start such as might be felt by the discoverer of some complex and important cipher as there are twenty-seven of the numbered paragraphs in the Declaration. So there are twenty-seven rooms in Monticello. Last of all there are two little phrases in the Declaration the phrases stating that we shall hold our British brethren in future as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war, in peace. Friends, which I would liken to the small twin buildings, one of them Jefferson's office the other that of the Overser, which stand on either side of the lawn at Monticello, at some distance from the house, these office buildings face, and balance upon each other, and upon the mansion, but they are so much smaller that to put them there required daring, while to make them, compose, as painters say with the great house, required the almost superhuman sense of symmetry which Jefferson assuredly possessed, the present owner of Monticello is Mr. Jefferson Monroe Levy, Former United States Congressman from New York, Mr. Levy is a Democrat and a bachelor, according to the Congressional Directory, which states further that he inherited Monticello from an uncle, Commodore Uriah P. Levy, U.S.N., and that the latter purchased the place in 1830, at the suggestion of President Jackson, Dorothy Dix, writing in, Good Housekeeping, tells a tale which I had heard repeatedly of the acquisition of Monticello by Uriah Levy, says Miss Dix, Monticello was sold to a stranger, and Jefferson's only daughter, Mrs. Randolph, widow and with eleven children, was left homeless. A subscription of three thousand dollars was raised to buy back the house, and this money was entrusted to a young relative of the Jeffersons to convey to Charlottesville. Traveling in the stagecoach with the young man was Captain Uriah P. Levy, to whom he confided his mission. The young man became intoxicated and dallied, but Captain Levy hastened on to Charlottesville and purchased Monticello for $2,500. The next day the repentant and sober young man arrived and besought Captain Levy to take the $3,000, and let Monticello go back to the Jefferson family. Captain Levy refused to part with his bargain, but at his death he willed Monticello to the people of the United States to be held as a memorial of Thomas Jefferson. The Levy heirs contested the will. And it was finally decided upon a technicality that the people of the United States was too indefinite a term to make the bequest binding, and the estate passate into the hands of the levies, and so to its present owner. In a biographical note upon the latter, the Congressional Directory states that the houses kept open to the public all the year. My companion and I were admitted to the grounds, but were informed that, though the building was unoccupied, no one was permitted to enter. While we were in the vicinity of the house we were attended by one of the men employed on the place, who told us that when people were allowed to roam about at will, there had been much vandalism, ivy had been pulled from the walls, shrubbery broken, pieces of brick chipped out of the steps, and teeth knocked from the heads of the marble lions which flanked them. Of recent years there has been on foot a movement, launched, I believe, by Mrs. Martin W. Littleton, of New York to influence the government to purchase Monticello from its present owner. It is difficult to see precisely how Mr. Levy could be forced to part with his property, if he did not wish to. Nevertheless public sentiment on this subject has become so strong that he has agreed to let the government have Monticello, at a price, so, at least, I was informed in Charlottesville. Chapter X V The University of Virginia The opening of the University of Virginia was an event of prime importance for the higher education in the whole country and Rioli marks a new era, Charles Forster Smith, like Monticello, the buildings of the University of Virginia are those of an intellectual, a classicist, a purist, and, like it, they might have been austere but for the warmth of their red brick and the glow of their white column porticos, but they are cheerful buildings, which, individually and as a group, attain a geometrical yet soft perfection, a supreme harmony of form and color, the principal buildings are grouped about a large campus, called the Lawn, which is dominated by the Rotunda, suggesting in its outlines the Pantheon at Rome. from the Rotunda, at either side, starts a white-columned arcade connecting the various houses which are distributed at graceful intervals along the margins of the rectangular Lawn, above which loom the tops of even rows of beautiful old trees, flanking the buildings of the Lawn and reached by brick walks which pass between the famous serpentine walls walls but one brick thick which support themselves on the snake fence principle. By progressing in a series of reverse curves, are the ranges, solid rows of one-story student dormitories built of brick and fronted by colonnades which command other lawns and other trees. With a single exception, restorations and additions to the university have been made with reverence and taste. And the Brooks Museum, the one architectural horror of the place fortunately does not stand upon the lawn, since it is said that beauty could not exist were there not ugliness for contrast. This building may have its uses, certainly. After a glance at it, one looks back with renewed delight at the structures of the central group, most superb of all, All always there hangs at night, above the buildings and the treetops, a glorious full moon, at least I suppose I